1: Follow the global story from the BBC, wherever you listen to podcasts.
2: When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products.
3: Welcome to Go Ask Ali, a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. I'm a sniper, I'm admitting it. Oh, you're a sniper. Totally. Yeah. 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 The fact that you don't keep your mouth shut is what's so great about you. Well, thank you. Truly. And will you tell that to my husband? (laughs) If you can shine as you go into death, you can shine as you go into middle age, right? Yeah. Like, why not start now? I'm going to enjoy my life. At the end of the day, I'm just a little particle on an asteroid flying through space, so. Exactly. Yeah. You got it. We're just a spec. We're specs. Welcome to Go Ask Allie. I'm Allie Wentworth. You know, this season, I just dug into everything I could get my hands on. I just peeled back the layers and got dirty. And now for the final episode of season two, we're going to have some fun. So this episode is all about laughter, the history, the science, the mental and physical benefits, and just the fun of laughing our asses off. When I was in sixth grade, I was in a play. It was a very serious play, and I played kind of a nerdy, nun like character that played the cello. And I remember in one of my scenes, I had to walk out and play the cello. And when I walked out stage, I sat down in the chair and I opened my legs and pulled the cello in so aggressively. It was unbeknownst to me, an incredibly sexual (laughs) move. And all of a sudden, everybody in the audience started laughing like uproariously laughing, clapping their hands, falling over. And I remember that feeling looking out in the audience. And I I didn't even know what I did. That was so funny at the time, thinking, this is the greatest feeling in the world. I want to be able to do this for the rest of my life. And so that's really when my C-list career started. It was in that moment I thought, I want to make people feel like this because it makes me feel great. And I've been laughing ever since. I have an amazing guest today. Sophie Scott is a professor and the director of cognitive neuroscience at University College London, who spent much of her academic career researching vocal communication, and most recently, the neurobiology of laughter. Occasionally, she takes the stage conducting her own personal research on laughter as a stand-up comedian. She is also an author and two-time TED Talker. Her talk on Why We Laugh has accumulated over 4.4 million views. So, do I call you Professor?
4: Uh, I'm not going to get cross if you, if you don't want to call me Professor all the time. I'm very happy with Sophie.
3: Okay. All right. I, I, I want to be respectful. <laughs> you are British. You do love your names. <laughs> well, I'm actually a commander of the British Empire if you want to go large. <laughs> so, I'm going to call you Professor right this second. But Professor Sophie Scott, um, we're going to talk about the science of laughter and if you had to encapsulate that into one sentence, what is the science of laughter?
4: The science of laughter is is really the science of laughter as a very important communication tool. We think it's about jokes and comedy, and it is about jokes and comedy, but it's actually one of the most important ways that we communicate with each other. And that's what I study scientifically.
3: And it's fascinating because everything I've read, people basically studied negative emotions. That was anxiety, fear, and we didn't pay much attention to the laughter and the more positive emotions. Why is that?
4: It's a very good question. And I'm not certain I can give you a good answer. Well, you're on this podcast (laughs) to give me a good answer, Sophie. (laughs) So I'm going to give you the very best answer I can. (laughs) Pull it
3: out of your (laughs) ass.
4: I think there's probably two main reasons. I think first of all, Psychology is a relatively new science. It's only really been going around for, you know, probably 130 years or so. Um, And when people were, certainly in the West, developing psychology, they were developing it as a science where you would sort of understand. Where things had gone wrong Mm -hmm. in pace with where what people used to sort of talk about normal behavior, sort of normal and abnormal behavior, would be how it was described when I was an undergraduate. So it made sense from that perspective to study negative emotions because if you want to understand anxiety, you need to understand fear. If you want to understand depression, you need to understand sadness. So that kind of went out to affect everything to the extent to which when we talk about emotions in my area, we largely mean negative emotions. There's very little research into anything else. And um I think there's a bigger cultural problem if you look back throughout relatively modern human history we've had a bit of a downer on laughter, so there was quite a lively debate in the sort of the medieval period I think about whether or not Christ had ever laughed with a very clear view that he would not have laughed it's not a Civilized behavior.
3: Well, I think he laughed his ass off. Don't you think they all got drunk at the <laughs> last supper and just, just one dirty joke after another? <laughs> I am absolutely not saying that I agree with this, but mm. the, the, the interesting
4: thing is people wanted to argue it. That idea there that has kind of carried on that there's something not very grown up, not serious and sage about laughter. It's disruptive and it's naughty and it makes you look uncivilized and rude. And that I think also influences our view culturally, not just scientifically, on laughter. So comedies very rarely win Oscars. And it's much harder to make a funny film than a scary film, frankly, but it's very hard for people to actually value that skill. And you see it everywhere. People generally think that comedians are standing up and just improvising rather than being incredibly skilled artists who have
3: written and worked and honed amazing pieces of material. Don't you think that some of that comes, if we're talking historically, from jesters and clowns? I mean, these were kind of not the village idiots, but they were people that were kind of that would come in and be your lowest common denominator of humor for the king or the queen and literally be silly. Yes. Juggle balls and whatever. And so we equate that with sort of silliness and sort of not an intellectual thing. But I actually think it's the greatest thing in the world. And I, I happen to know a stand-up comedian who's a friend of mine, Jerry Seinfeld. And I can tell you he is at the office every day, all day long, yep. writing and honing his skill. It's a full-time job. It's not throwing balls and gerbils <laughs> up in the air. It's, it's a real thing. It really is i just say it again, it is so much harder to make people laugh. And
4: you, if you're a stand-up comedian, you know in the moment if it's working. Mm-hmm. You're there with it happening or not happening. It's an unbelievably complex skill, stand-up comedy. It's, you know, it combines writing and performance and commanding a room, holding attention. So I think, as you say, there's this, this kind of link to somehow foolishness, the fool, mm-hmm. the jester, the, the clown, all of which are very skilled, somehow makes this it's almost like it's a diminutive thing it's a childish thing and we never quite lose that at the same time as we value it greatly apparently apparently king henry the who was a bit of a capricious king if his, his staff had to give him bad news they used to get his jester to do it <laughs> really because
3: he wouldn't stay cross with the jester <laughs> whereas he might get really cross with someone else he used to kill people when he got upset. Yep. So he probably went through a lot of jesters. <laughs> the jester kind of had
4: license that other people didn't have. Right. You know, and I think that is that is again something that is a feature of comedians. There's we give them a certain sort of license that we might not accept in other people.
3: It's funny that you say that because I sort of see a connection, huge connection with anxiety and depression and comedy and laughter because having worked as a comedic actress for so many years, I've noticed a lot of comedians are funny because they've come from a place of anxiety or, you know, they're some of the most unhappy people I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and it's interesting that I think because of need and trying to sort of fill a hole in their own emotional life, they've mastered the art of making other people feel good and make other people laugh. There is a
4: very interesting kind of set of studies looking at this. So there are some studies finding that if you just take comedians as a whole, their personalities are not different from, in many features, from that of the, the normal population. So they are no more, um, right. the unpleasant phrase uses neurotic, but basically that means like a tendency to have issues with mental health. They're no more likely as a group, than any other group. And I wonder when I look at that sort of data, okay, I believe that. But what happens when you're really famous and you're really performing a lot? You know, it's not just the comedy, is it? It's the sort of the life and the the pressures that are on you that I'm sure interact with that. But there are other interesting differences that you find in comedians that are there for all comedians and are very different from the normal population. And one of them is open-mindedness. So they tend to be more kind of, free in their thinking about things, which you would expect in a comedian. They're not going to be funny if you're very narrow, I guess. And they also have less of a need for social approval than the normal population, where you find a need for social approval quite a lot. And I think when I've asked comedians about this, they always say the same thing, which is I get it on stage people laugh when I'm on stage. I I don't need more than that. I get that feeling, that lovely dopamine hit from the laughter then and there. So I think there's a lot more to know about it. And as you say, there are some very kind of famous cases of comedians who suffer terribly with mental health issues, but it may just reflect a a normal distribution where you find this anyway. And it may also, I think, interact with with the lifestyle as well as the
3: comedy. So this is when I won't call you Professor, because you have done stand-up comedy. So my question is, why. And don't you, because you've researched this and you are a professor of laughter, you know all the tricks. I first did stand-up comedy, oh gosh, about 10 years ago. The university that
4: I work at, University College London, um, about 12 years ago, it started to do a lot more public engagement activities, do more stuff in our own community. And they started doing these stand-up comedy nights where all the performers were staff and students from the university. And there'd be a a professional comedian hosting the whole thing. And when I first heard about this, I thought, I'm not doing that. That sounds absolutely dreadful. You know, I'd just been made a professor. and I thought, I'm not putting myself through that. And then it had been going for a couple of years, and one of my male colleagues about the same age as me said oh have you done this Sophie it's called Bright Club he said have you done Bright Club he said I've done it I was brilliant it went really well and everyone laughed and I thought <laughs> you <laughs> bastards you haven't even asked me you asked him and he was brilliant so two months later I found myself locked in a pub toilet in London going what? what are you thinking you know and then I did it and it went okay and people laughed and I came off stage just thinking I've got to do that again and do it better I want to learn how to do this um i found it very, very interesting. I still do it whenever I get the opportunity. I make all my students do it because it's such a great uh, opportunity to kind of really improve your communication skills and your confidence in the moment. You sort of feel you can do anything if you've done that. Um, I don't think I have an advantage from knowing about laughter. If anything, it's taught me a lot more about laughter, having the experience of doing stand-up comedy because you see it from a completely different perspective. And I used to think, because I was an idiot, that stand-up comedians were sort of broadcasting a joke into the room. And I had never thought about it as an interaction. As soon as you're doing it from on the stage, you realize it's a complete interaction. You're having a weird conversation with the people in that room where all other things being equal, they will laugh and you're the only person talking. But sometimes they don't laugh or sometimes they laugh when you didn't expect them to. And you have to be able to sort of cope with that in the moment. And Mm. actually what's happening in that room, they may not, all know each other, but they start to behave together. And what's actually happening there is quite extraordinary. I'd I'd love to really get my... I had one big scientific ambition. It would be to actually try and understand what's happening in a comedy environment to the audience and how the comedian is sort of controlling that and responding to that because no one tells us how to do it,
3: but it's something that sort of gets negotiated in that room and in that space. And it's, it's an incredible thing. I was doing a sketch comedy show you know, 25 years ago called In Living Color in, in America. And of it was predominantly men. And on hiatus, they were going and doing stand-up and making a fortune doing stand-up. And my manager at the time said, Ali, you have to go do stand-up. That's where the money is. And I went to a sports bar by LAX, the Los Angeles International Airport. And I got up and I was wearing a little sundress and little daisy sandals. And before I could even, you know, do my first joke, they all started yelling strip 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 and so i dropped the mic and that was it but now that i'm an old hag i think maybe i'll go back and try it because i'm sort of fascinated like you are about the the mechanics of the room and what happens and yeah know, i was i was too young and terrified and there was a hockey game on at the same time it wasn't the best platform for it but i agree with you i think it's fascinating and i think there's something about that confidence yeah The only thing that I think academics
4: have is they were very used to standing up and giving talks. So I was used to people shutting up and letting me speak. And that kind of, I carry that onto the stage with me. You would be brilliant at doing it now. You probably would have been brilliant, Leonard. They'd let you, but you just, (laughs) we we get more confidence as we get older, do you know? And that's something you bring onto the stage with you.
3: Well, now that I'm, you know, a 56 year old woman, I'm going to, I'm going to change it up and they're going to sit back and have a beer and get ready to laugh. And I'm going to strip Ha ha! jokes on them. (laughs)
4: You know, but also if the audience pick up that an, or, and a comedian is unhappy or uncomfortable or, or anxious or unconfident, then they're like, oh, yeah. what's going on here? And they'll stop laughing. And it, it's a very interesting space where things can kind of change quite quickly. And it can be hard to get an audience back. If you're trying to be serious, and in fact, they're still laughing, or if you want them to laugh and they've gone to a serious place, it's very hard to keep that balance,
3: I think. Yeah, an audience is very instinctual and they can smell it too, kind of when you're off or you're insecure about something. So going back to the science of laughter, the first sign of somebody noticing that laughter wasn't getting its due, kind of the research of it, and he thought it was important is Darwin, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Darwin was a
4: shining light in, in love to science. Yeah, and he wrote this beautiful book about the expressions of emotions in man and other animals. And he basically started a lot of modern psychology in that book. We think of him as being this kind of you know amazing progenitor of evolutionary theory. But by applying evolutionary theory to effectively psychological factors like emotional recognition and expression, that was a psychological theory that was a really important one and which we still have strong elements of. And he wrote so much about. Real insight into lots of different emotions in that book, and he talked so much about laughter. He valued it, he'd recognize it when he saw it in other animals. He he describes it beautifully. He describes a baboon being tickled at the zoo by a zookeeper, and the animal's eyes become bright like jewels. (laughs) And then we just, a, a lot of the next century, people picked up on Darwin's ideas about emotions and wrote a lot about them and investigated them a lot, with the exception of laughter. So, all this stuff on fear and anger and Sadness, um, we're all, you know, kind of taken forward and and often acknowledged as coming from him, and then we just just ignored it. Yeah, and then
3: Paul Ekman wrote a lot about it too.
4: Yeah, I I owe everything I do on laughter to Paul Ekman actually because he took Darwin's ideas and was testing these ideas of you know could you find facial expressions of emotion that were recognised in all human cultures for example, and that was things like fear, anger, disgust, sadness, happiness, and surprise. You can go anywhere in the world and find those emotional expressions recognized and see similar expressions in the humans that you meet. But I was at a conference, because I was working on vocal versions of these um, from the 90s, mm-hmm. and I saw Paul Ekman giving a talk about this at a conference, and I asked him, why are they all so negative? Like On a day-to-day basis, I feel like I experience mostly positive emotions, little dips and drops of negative ones. Most of the time, it's positive. It would seem strange to me that more of them wouldn't be represented in this sort of evolutionarily important set of, of emotions. And he said he thought they were. They might not be well studied by static photographs of faces he thought that what you might need to do was look at like body movement or voices. And I was like, great, I look at voices. So I started looking at positive as well as negative emotions. And he talked about relief, contentment, physical pleasure, triumph, kind of an achievement feeling, feeling proud, and what he called amusement. And that's why I started looking at laughter. I never set out to look at laughter. If I hadn't gone to that talk by Paul Ekman, none of this would have happened. I know it's probably very upsetting for everyone to think about. (laughs) But as soon as you start studying laughter, as this set of much bigger emotions, you know, as one of set of 10 emotions I was now looking at, it just runs away from you because you realize it's everywhere. It's incredibly well recognized. We found it is cross-culturally recognized. It probably should be added to the list of basic emotions that Ekman was studying. Mm -hmm. And it is not only found in humans. You find it in other animals. And then, of course, you go back to Darwin and realize, oh, <laughs> right, okay. And Darwin was talking about joy. He wasn't talking about amusement. He was talking about something much more elemental than that. So you think, okay, we, we need to rethink this right from the beginning.
3: So you're telling me other mammals laugh? They do. The way we do?
4: It's very easy to recognize if you look at other apes, because it looks and it sounds like laughter. Um, So, if you have a chance, go onto YouTube and Google Coco the gorilla and Robin Williams. <sighs> and there's a clip of the late Robin Williams. Coco and Coco could sign in American Sign Language. And she signs to him, Tickle Me. And it's really hard to tickle a gorilla. It takes him a while to get in there. You've really got to get it in there. And when he manages it, you see her start laughing. And he's absolutely recognizable her facial expressions, her movements, the movement of her body. Chimpanzee laughter, which again looks very similar. Is it sounds a bit like sound they breathe in and out when they're laughing sound? And again, it looks very recognizably like laughter. Orangutans, bonobos, you see a very similar pattern. But they're not the only animals that laugh, probably. There's very interesting work from another American scientist, um, yeah, who worked on rats and he was working on rat vocalizations and he was studying sounds rats make when they're unhappy. rats are very small and they have high-pitched voices. So you have to reduce their voices down in pitch to hear them. And when they did that, they noticed that the rats made other sorts of sounds all the time. And they made a particular kind of chirping sound when they were playing with each other. And rats are very social and they play with each other a lot. So they started tickling the rats to see if it was associated with laughter. And the rats make the same sound when they're tickled. And if you tickle a rat and then take your hand away, it will make the sound to try and get you to carry on doing the activity. So it's... uh, it seems to be associated with play and social bonding. That's where you find it in common across other animals. Right. Panksep thought that at its heart, wherever you found laughter, it was the invitation to play. Come, come and take part in this delightful, fun activity that's not going to be painful and not going to be horrible. We're just going to enjoy ourselves. That seems to be very important to mammals and it's associated with sound and that may well be the root of laughter.
3: A few years ago, I was in Rwanda and I had climbed up this gigantic mountain and I was sort of in there embedded with the gorillas. And Ah. I'm just remembering this now. And this silverback, you know, the papa gorilla walked by me and used his ass to sort of push me. And I went rolling backwards down the hill. I mean, like Lucille Ball. Yeah. And he started making these noises which of course I thought you know terror he's gonna kill me yeah and one of the guides with us says no he thought that was funny oh that's amazing you know that he pushed me and I had rolled backwards I mean I was laughing hysterically partly because I was terrified but also I couldn't believe a gorilla just pushed me down the hill (laughs) but it's so interesting I haven't thought about it in that way but he probably thought it was funny yeah our little interaction he was being playful
0: yeah amazing And now in this season's must-have shades and patterns, add the finishing touch with the limited-edition bombshell-escaped fragrance, a free-spirited take on the iconic Victoria's Secret scent. Dive into a vibrant blend of juicy guava, lush palms, and summer glow peony. Shop now at your closest Victoria's Secret store or online at victoriasecret.com.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
4: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God.
0: Great. Let's get
3: back to it. When Paul Ekman, who talks a lot about, as you just said, how laughter is cross-cultural, and you showed a video in one of your talks, which I loved, with Yeltsin and Clinton. Yes. Because I felt it really demonstrated how you can sort of cross what would be a very somber time these the two of them were doing a press conference and in fact my husband george Stephanopoulos, who worked for clinton remembers that oh wow and remembers how even the two of them laughing got everybody watching laughing the press corps and everything so to to sum it up so yelton was there he had had um, meetings with Clinton. Clinton was sort of standing like a good soldier next to him. Yeltsin was talking. He was being interpreted. Yeah. You take it from there. What was the shift and what happened and what made us all laugh?
4: It had been quite a serious series of meetings. And yeah. and Yeltsin was prone to blaming the press for reporting on meetings in ways that he didn't appreciate. So he comes out and he's saying through the interpreter, you were all saying that this meeting was going to be a disaster, but actually... You are the disaster, and you know <laughs> and it's funny now at the time he was just quite cross, yeah, but the really interesting part is that right from the outset, Clinton is standing there very seriously, but he was also watching Yeltsin like an absolute hawk, and the first opportunity he got to laugh, and it's a little laugh, but is when. Yeltsin mentioned his name in this meeting with Bill Clinton and then that was translated, and Bill Clinton's like, I oh, like that laugh. That's my name, that's funny. And it gets a little bit of a laugh from that. <laughs> and then that you are the disaster bit, Clinton does an enormous laugh. And then that really starts to set other people off. And it makes Yeltsin smile, and he carries on. And now Clinton keeps laughing and it's like everything that he's saying now is being treated as amusing and very witty. And Yeltsin starts to laugh as well. And it's a masterclass in somebody taking a very awkward situation and using laughter in a very targeted way to completely diffuse the tension and also to kind of include everybody in it. He didn't laugh at Yeltsin. He was behaving as if Yeltsin was being very, very witty which was very clever. Again, you could just look at at this fool, let's all laugh at him, which would have made everything worse. So Yeltsin felt included and like he was hilarious. And it was just, it was a beautiful piece of work because it absolutely achieved its aim and it left him and Yeltsin looking closer and
3: bonded and like presenting a common front. Exactly. And as a bystander or certainly somebody watching the video, you have this kind of relief. Oh, we're good. Yes, Oh, yes. Foreign relations are good because we're all laughing together. We all get the joke. And I I mean, I'm surprised they don't try to do that more in these very uncomfortable press conferences. You have to play your hand very carefully. And
4: I think, again, this is a real hat tip to, to Clinton's reading of The Room because you can't just start laughing and assume everything will make then work. Right. He makes a point, in fact, of sort of clapping Yeltsin on the back and pulling him into him to say, you know, like how right. closely they are bonded over finding this hilarious. So it's he's very, very careful to do it in a respectful way, an inclusive way. But also, you can imagine if the press corps hadn't started laughing as well, if everyone was just mortified, and he'd pressed on, it would have been awful. So you need to read the room. You need to you know if the audience is not going with you in that journey, then stop because it will just make things worse. And like Provine pointed this out, you know, so laughter often works very, very well to diffuse situations, except for the times when it doesn't, and then it makes things yeah, worse. Exactly. You know, he was absolutely reading that environment and taking the laughter in the direction where it felt comfortable going. And it worked. And it worked.
3: Yeah. And It made me think about how many times you've seen on stage when actors break, you know, where one of them yeah. kind of makes the other one laugh and they cannot get back to the dialogue, and they're just cracking up. And you as the audience start cracking up too. You don't even know why they're laughing. I mean, that is another very odd thing about laughter in that
4: it's very, very contagious. Very. A lot of the laughter you produce happens just because someone else is laughing. And in fact, that's a lot of what Clinton was doing was just just laughter will lead to laughter. And that's why we laugh when people corpse on stage. Slight detour, yeah, there are quite a lot of contagious behaviors that we have as humans, so yawning is contagious, scratching can be contagious, blinking is contagious, coughing, and all of those things are social. you're much more likely to catch them from someone you know than someone you don't know. and also they're things we learn to do. Babies don't show contagious yawning. We don't really know the trajectory, but you have to be quite a good age for it. We basically teach babies to do it, and also we're not the only animals that show it, so contagious yawning is actually found in many different social animals including turtles as well as dogs and chimpanzees however the only animal that has been found to laugh contagiously is humans so there is something very interesting going on there really there's a there's something about yeah and i wonder if that links into maybe like like laughter can kind of jump the gap between us. Mm. Whereas two chimpanzees, they will laugh when they're playing with each other, but a, a third chimpanzee is not in the game and just sitting next to them, won't laugh at all. So there's something about its ability for us to share it at a
3: distance that I wonder, maybe that builds up to elements of our interactions with comedy, for example. Yeah, that's interesting. Another thing that comes to mind is a few years ago, I was in Burundi, Africa, down there on a rather serious mission, Uh, building a hospital. And one afternoon, I took a lot of the local girls, teenagers, and we were going to bead necklaces together. And I thought, oh, this will be so great. What a great bonding experience. And I had my teenage daughter with me. So we were all beading and it was really awkward because we didn't speak the language. They didn't speak English. We all kind of looked at each other. Why are we even beating? What a stupid thing to do. (laughs) And at one point, we gave all the girls Coca-Cola, which was like a big treat to have this sugary soda. And then one of the girls drank her Coca-Cola down and made the loudest burp I've ever heard in my life. Just this, it it was, it echoed through the whole room. And there was a pause, you know, just like dead silence. And then everybody started laughing, everybody. Mm. And it completely changed the atmosphere of the afternoon. And then suddenly after that burp and after fits of laughter we all suddenly knew each other like we all suddenly had a relationship yeah and i remember when i came back from burundi i said to my husband i think there's a science to how laughter brings people together in a way that is so intangible almost kind of this ethereal thing mm. and because that day it i can't explain to you how much it pivoted. And yeah. I just thought, I mean, I think that laughter is the greatest thing in the world. And I, I do it sometimes, probably when I shouldn't. But it was a just a poignant moment in my life where I thought, yes, this is the great equalizer. Mm.
4: But We have the phrase, it breaks the ice. And what we mean is people laugh and the room warms up and you start to share something. And it's, it's an incredible way of making and maintaining social bonds laughter. And as you say, it changes things. Once you've had the chance to laugh together, you're, you have a different relationship with those people. So I think that's a, that's a really lovely example of it transcending language and leading to a completely different emotional tone to the whole meeting. Um, I think the thing that's interesting is that you can't just make people laugh. So people laugh when they're in particular places with particular people. So laughter reflects not just the thing that's made you laugh, it also reflects who you're with and how you feel about them and how comfortable you all feel. Um, I remember before the pandemic, there was something somebody put on um, social media that made me smile. And it was a clip of the original Dr. Doolittle film, which came out in the 60s and has Rex Harrison sort of marching around with giant snails and things. Mm. And there's one bit in it, where he sings a love song to a seal dressed as a human woman. Oh, it's one of the lovely songs. He sings these, and the seal's are looking at him and then he kisses the seal and then he throws the seal off a cliff into the sea and she swims away. It's really odd. And it made me laugh and it made me smile. And when as soon as I got home, I showed it to my partner and our son and I said, you've got to see this. And then I became hysterical. Because watching them laugh and find it funny magnified my laughter Mm. uh, 10, 50, 100 times. I'd laugh with, you know, when I'm with friends, but I really lose it most of all when I'm with people really, I'm really, really close to. And if I'm with people I don't like or I don't know, there might be a little laughter, but it's not, you know, it's much less likely. Too self-conscious. Exactly. And so what you find actually is laughter actually reflects people's feeling about who they're with. Because it's primarily a social behavior. You're 30 times, Robert Provine found, to more likely to laugh if there's somebody else with you than if you're on your own. So it's already sort of promoted by social contact, but actually the who you are with really matters. And it will affect the amount of laughter and the extent of laughter
3: and the amount of sharing of the laughter. It's so interesting. Um, so the other thing I want to talk about is laughter as emotional health, because I I truly believe that laughter is healing. Mm. And I've written some humor books, and most of the compliments I get are from people who say, you know, my mother was sick, or my father was in the hospital, and I was reading your book aloud, and it was making them laugh. And it actually, it changed... Their physicality, it changed their mood. Yeah. And that is to me the greatest compliment in the world. And I think that laughter, you know, the cliche laughter is therapy, laughter is the best medicine. I think it's true. Mm. And the more I've read about it, the more I've read that it does actually strengthen your immune system. It actually does real physical, helpful things. So talk to me about that.
4: It is very, very interesting. So if you look at the The physiological responses, so you your body's responses to laughter, you get some things that happen really quickly. So very soon after you started laughing, you get an increased uptake of endorphins. And those are the body's naturally circulating painkillers. And that's why you can literally tolerate pain more when you're laughing, when you've been laughing. Um, (laughs) I laugh when I'm in pain quite a lot. Uh, it was the only thing on my birth notes was like, if I'm laughing, don't assume I'm all right. <laughs> and some people do this. It seems to be quite random. And I suspect actually it's a deliberate strategy to get the endorphins going to cope with pain. I, I can't say, I don't have much insight into it, but it's certainly something I know. unless I, I do a lot, unless I'm really like a broken arm or something, it doesn't really work then. But there's that element to it. And it's a measurable effect this change, your threshold of pain, coping with pain. You also get an immediate reduction in adrenaline. And adrenaline is that fight or flight hormone. Mm-hmm. So when you are feeling really anxious, if something scares you and your heart starts pumping, that is adrenaline. And adrenaline can work really, really quickly. It can also get turned off really, really quickly. And if you measure someone's heart rate before they start laughing, then show them something funny and then measure it again, because the heart, your heart rate will actually go up while you're laughing. But as soon as you stop laughing, you'll notice the heart rate drops back down lower than it was before really interestingly, and you can do this to yourself if you've got one of those little pulse oximeters that we all started buying during COVID. If you sit down to watch something that will make you laugh, look at your pulse. What you'll notice is your pulse will probably drop just before you start watching because you're actually anticipating the laughter. It's already making your adrenaline levels go down. It's extraordinary.
3: And I would imagine the intake, the oxygen intake from laughing so hard, you must see that too.
4: Well, that's a very good question. And I can't think of a good study that's actually shown that. And I think one of the problems is when you're laughing really hard, humans laugh on an exhalation. Ha, 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 ha. And that's actually just pushing air out of you. And you'll sometimes be aware you're, you're desperately gasping for breath. I suspect your oxygen levels get a bit depleted as well because you're really slowing down the normal rate at which you would breathe in and then you gasp a great big breath in. So that's a good question. It'd be worth looking at that with your pulse oximeter experiments you send me your results
3: mm. you also get i love that we're working together
4: as <laughs> colleagues exactly <laughs> well I, I, there's so little science on this it's, it's all to be done yeah there's another hormone which affects your Is affected by laughter and that's cortisol cortisol is the stress hormone it's the thing that wakes you up in the morning it's quite often you know and you wake up first thing and you feel a bit grotty that is cortisol And you know when you're really stressed out and you're not eating and sleeping properly and there's something bothering you all the time and you feel bad, that is cortisol working. In the long term, cortisol levels that are high are not good for you. You need it a bit, but you don't need lots of it and it has a sluggish response. So unlike adrenaline, which responds really quickly, cortisol levels vary more slowly. But again, you find after people have been laughing, slower timescale, you will see the cortisol levels reduce. So you're you're more relaxed because the adrenaline is going down and you are less stressed because the cortisol is going down and you feel good because that's the endorphins. Um, Endorphins don't just act as a pain reliever. You feel nice. It's like that good feeling you get when you've been exercising. There is, and you've referred to it, one more thing that we do know about, and I have to be very cautious here because I don't, we don't exactly know why it happens, that when you are you also get an increase in human growth hormone. Now, human growth hormone is a very, very important hormone throughout your life when you are going in the womb, when you're a baby and a child. It's what's powering the changes in your body. Once you are a grown adult, it doesn't stop its work. It continues playing an important role, but its main role, which you've hinted at, is actually in the immune system. So it's hard to do the studies to actually prove the effect, but there's certainly a mechanism for it. Mm. So you've got these, you've got these clear effects in your body that are affecting your mood, how you feel, and how relaxed you are, and how stressed you are.
3: Uh, I read that laughter helps stop dementia, and so now every day I call my mother, who's 88, and tell her a dirty joke <laughs> just. <laughs> My little way of helping her <laughs> medically. Um, but here's my question to you, Sophie. And it's a confession. A couple of times in my life, I've laughed so hard that I've peed my pants. Why is that?
4: Um, it's actually quite common in childhood. It's called giggle incontinence. Mm. And... Um, The actual mechanism for it seems to be, and this is going to sound crazy, okay, right now I'm sitting in a chair and it feels like I'm not doing anything, but actually there's lots and lots of work that my body's doing to maintain my posture. As soon as you start laughing, that motor control over your body starts to get suppressed. And that's why you become very weak when you're laughing. And it's why you start to get floppy and you may actually go onto the floor. We are rolling on the floor laughing is a thing. I can, I've can, seen, you know, we've all seen people do it. I've done it. I've kidding? It's, and it's not just the postural control of the muscles in your body. You know, your urine is being kept in by motor control. So if you lose control of that that's why it happens. So it's, it's a marker of, a, of the sort of suppression of the motor system that happens when we laugh. And we understand very little about this. If you think about it in evolutionary terms, it's absurd. Why would we so easily get into a state where, you know, if a tiger came in at that exact point, it probably could just eat you without any problem. You would not be able to defend yourself at all. And if you try and do something fiddly with your hands, like do up buttons when you're laughing, you just can't do it. Yeah. You just have lost all that control.
3: Yeah, I find that um, when I have been with friends and that happened and I peed my pants, I, I did lose the room. They did leave <laughs> after they laughed at me. Um, I mean, th- to me, there's no better feeling than being with your family or close friends, literally laughing your asses off. There's just no better feeling in the world. It's probably the most
4: important part of your whole day, the times when you get to do that. When we went into the first lockdown in the UK just over two years ago, because we're in quite a small flat and my son was schooling from home, my partner and I both working from home. Yep, been there. Yeah, we have all been there. So, okay, end of every day, 5.30, we're putting away the computers, we're going to watch something on television that makes us laugh. It almost didn't matter what it was, but we would do it together and it would be funny. And actually, we've carried on doing it because it's a silly half hour, but it's a perfect half hour. And, you know, there's, we're all still alive. We're all still here. Let's spend that time making
3: sure we spend some time laughing together. I agree with you 100%. I feel like we spent COVID, and I actually wrote a book about it that's coming out in May. We spent COVID during the day because George was doing Good Morning America from our dining room, just watching COVID numbers and worrying about people getting sick. And I got sick very early on. It was very scary. And we did the exact same thing. We got addicted to a show called Love Island Australia, (laughs) which I had to explain to George was just about people having sex and not getting kicked (laughs) off an island. But you know, we still watch something funny. Funny at night because I think, particularly now with what's happening in the world, we need that release. We need that laughter. Um, I think it's so important. Yeah. So Sophie, I always ask all these questions to my poor guests when they come on my podcast, and so I always allow my guests to ask me a question. So you may ask me anything you want.
4: Can you remember things that made you laugh when you were a kid that you might have shared with your family? Did you have like family jokes?
3: I did. So I grew up in Washington D.C., and my parents were political journalists during Watergate. So it was a very somber time, and my parents were very serious. And dinner was, you know, we spent talking about, you know, what was going on with the hearings, and and I decided that we needed levity, even as a young child. So I used to Mm. put on. Some silly outfit, or like one of my mother's dresses, and I would do a show. I would stand on the table and I would entertain. I would lip sync. And I remember one night, it was very hard to get my parents to laugh. I had not developed breasts yet so i had a flat chest and i put on black tights and i stuck a pillow down my tights and i pretended to be barishnikov and it was the first time that i saw my parents laugh really really hard and and for me that was it i thought well then comedy yeah. comedy is the way to go yeah so yeah i i do remember that and i do remember thinking how great it was to make my parents laugh how great it made them feel and how great it made me feel to do it so Mm, that's beautiful thank you yeah um (laughs) this has been so so helpful and so interesting and it's really an area that i'm fascinated by couldn't agree more oh excellent sophie thank you so much thank you i really enjoyed it we'll be right back
2: tika.com.
3: And we're back. You have to love a genius, funny lady like Sophie Scott. And I'm telling you, if I ever get a chance to see her do stand-up, I can't wait. She almost inspired me to do stand-up, although I'm 105 years old, so there's no way I'm going to try now. But I bet she's amazing. So, guys, this is the last episode of season two of Go Ask Allie. And one of my favorite things we did this season is answer listener questions. And so we've been stockpiling a bunch just for this occasion. And we got a few of them I'd like to have my way with. This is from a listener in Wisconsin Hi, Allie, love your podcast and recently listened to the Girlfriend Coach episode. I have a 30 plus year friendship with a treasured friend. However, I often find myself envious of her. Things that I used to admire about her now make me jealous. She's pretty, thin, has a wonderful marriage, perfect children and grandchildren. Her life has changed with retirement and has opportunities to travel and make new friends. I don't want to feel envious of her. I realize that's my problem. I just want to get some advice on how to change my feelings towards her. I treasure our friendship and don't want to do anything to jeopardize it. (sighs) Ooh, this is an excellent question, and I think that everybody at some point in their life has felt that towards a friend. Um, I recently went to visit a friend who's got this incredible house, beautiful house, right on the ocean. And it's interesting. I Maybe 20 years ago, I would have been jealous, but now I'm just so happy for her. So what you have to kind of say to yourself is that you're grateful for the friendship, And that you truly are happy for her because there are so many people now that are suffering. We do have to celebrate the people that are healthy and have great relationships with their children and are traveling. And the other thing is try to get in on that. In other words try to get in on that joy. You've been friends with her for 30 plus years. Go enjoy her children and her grandchildren. If she travels, travel with her. You know, sometimes it feels good to be around that. It inspires us. It makes us better. And- You know, if you're at the playground with her grandchildren and her, and you're laughing and you know helping Timmy down the slide, you're participating and enjoying what you have seen as an enviable life. But now you're part of it. Okay, Brooke, who's my producer? Let him roll. Hi, Allie. Just curious, are you taking HRT or any form of hormones? Okay, hormones. Um, always a tricky conversation. I am not taking any hormones right now because my levels are very even and I'm not experiencing any anxiety or depression or foggy brain uh, or night sweats or n- no strong symptoms of perimenopause or menopause. And so because of that, I'm a big believer in let things lay if if it's working for now. However, if I started to experience any of the you know horrible side effects, I would definitely go to the doctor and I would try something out. And again, it's different for everybody, what kind of hormones you want to take. But I implore you to go to your doctor and get your hormone levels checked. Next question.
1: Hi, Allie. I just would like to know who you think is the funniest person, the one person that no matter what, can always make you
3: laugh. It's hard to say who the funniest person is for me um, because circumstances make me laugh. Like when I wake up in the morning and my dog Cooper is eating a full box of dried spaghetti or my husband is holding his keys and says he can't find them. But Ricky Gervais, the stand-up comedian, really makes me laugh. And there's a video where Liam Neeson goes to him because he wants... Ricky Gervais to teach him about comedy. And it is so funny to me. It makes me laugh every time. And there's also a bit where Ricky Gervais is playing God and telling every breed of dog what their responsibility is. And that always makes me laugh. And there's links um, at the end of our show notes if you want to see some of this stuff. But, you know, I I feel like I can find one or two things a day that make me really laugh that are sometimes just completely mundane. But I always do look for things. I, I always like to laugh at least twice a day. Ooh, now we have a text. Here we go. How do you navigate girl clicks as an adult when you aren't in one, but maybe you'd like to be? Ooh, this is a very relevant question because it's something that I have been talking about and thinking about in my own life because I have a group of friends and, you know, we have a ball together, but I have other friends too. And I found that that uh, a friend of mine who wasn't kind of featured in the squad photos, had her feelings hurt. And I, I actually, I couldn't believe it because, you know, I think at a certain age, we don't care about this stuff, but we actually do. And I've noticed that there have been times when I've seen, you know, a post of of a group of friends of mine having dinner or doing something fun. And I have that FOMO feeling. And I realize, and I even say to my teenage daughters, I don't think you ever outgrow it. I think you always feel left out. And I think the important thing to do is dive right in. And what I mean by that is if they're girl clicks that you want to be part of, invite them all over or you know, send them an email and say, hey, oh my gosh, I saw you guys on the beach. It looks so fun. I'd love to join you next time. Because as much as we internalize that that they are Emitting us or not allowing us to be part of it, that's probably not true. And if you did just reach out and say, Hey, how about, you know, drinks at my house or I'd love to take you guys skydiving or whatever your hobby is, I think you'll find that people, especially when we get older, are more inclusive. Okay, now we have another audio question. Being as you are the mother of daughters, how do you handle it when or if one of your girls brings home A young man that you immediately get a bad vibe off of just by virtue of the fact that you've been around a lot longer than your daughter and around a lot of people and you just get a bad vibe. But your daughter is oblivious. (sighs) Well, my daughters, who are still relatively young, there's only been two that they brought home, and they were both very sweet, delightful boys. So I haven't yet experienced an older daughter bringing somebody home that she's very, very interested in. But I have no problem verbalizing my opinion because my feeling is yes we have been around longer listen i dated a lot of bad boys i can sniff them before they walk in the door so i would be honest and now it's it's going to make them angry but There is a little bit of, I told you so, when he shows his true colors. And I actually think in some way, and it might not be on the surface or conscious, they do want to hear our opinions. So if somebody comes into your daughter's life and you get a really bad vibe from it, verbalize it, truly. You might be saving her a lot of heartache in the future or prison time, depending on the guy. Now, if this is a rebellious thing, If your daughter is defiantly dating somebody just to piss you off, then I would play it very cool because that's just a kid acting out. And so rather than give them the treats they're looking for, I would just say, you know, oh, he's great. I mean, I I actually love his tattoos. You know, I've never seen anybody with a, a pierced tongue before, but he wears it well. And don't give her the satisfaction. Okay. Give me another. Hi, Allie. I was wondering how the results were at this point of your blepharoplasty under eye surgery. I have the same thing I always have. I never chose to do anything about it, but I was envied and wondered how yours went and how you feel about it now that you got it done. And it's been several years. Ah, yes. Blepharoplasty. So I had the bags under my eyes done. Wow. I think it was about 10 years ago. And at first, when I was getting the surgery, which basically just sucks out of the the fat out of the under your eyes, which I inherited from my dad. Thank you very much, dad. um, I didn't know anything about it. I didn't know how much it was going to hurt. I was a little nervous beforehand. And I went on the internet, I couldn't find anything. And I used to ask women who clearly had had a lot of stuff done, I would say, you know, does it hurt when you have blepharoplasty? And everyone would say, oh, I don't know. I've never done anything. I was like, uh, okay, Joan Rivers. So I decided after I had the blepharoplasty, I wrote an article about it for Elle magazine, but I also videotaped every day, like a video diary of before the surgery and then my recovery after. And I I think it was very helpful to people. Obviously, it was helpful to you because you knew to ask me this question. And now it's 10 years later. I feel great that I did it. It was kind of my Moby Dick, the thing that really bothered me. And I'm absolutely 100 percent satisfied, glad I did it. I would do it again if I needed to, but I don't. And anybody that, you know, is thinking about it, I encourage you. Okay, Brooke. I think we have time for one more.
2: We've been married for a long time, and your purpose is to um, help your husband uh, raise your daughter, help your husband in business. Do you have a purpose? And all of a sudden, you get divorced, and you find yourself late fifties, early sixties, and there's no purpose. How do you find
3: that? Okay, listen to me, all you women out there, late fifties. 50s early 50s, late 60s, it doesn't matter how old you are. There are many, many, many chapters in our life. You know, my youngest daughter is going to go off to college in a year and we will be empty nesters. And my feeling is, okay, what's next? Do I want to write a book? Do I want to make textiles? Do I want to, you know, make jam and sell it at the farmer's market? I mean, you have to look at it not as an end, but as a beginning. And I think so many women now, particularly middle-aged women, are starting new chapters. So this is what I would do if I were you, because we all have purpose. I think you take out a pen and paper and write down all your interests, both charitable and, you know, self-interest. Like, I would love to make skirts and sell them. And... You know, I really care. I'm a big child advocate. What kind of charities that involve children could I be involved in? Or I love animals. And make a list of things that you could actually go volunteer for. Because I think that there's a great balance in life of giving back and what I call giving to. So why not start a new business? Why not go read to a boy or girl club? Why not do all of these things. Um, I have found that we are, us women, are the most prolific and the most creative at this point in our life. I know women that have started painting. I know women that just wrote their first book in mid-50s. So... You can do it all. Just It just have to simmer simmer it all down to what it is that makes you tick. What do you love? What interests you? And take it from there. And again, make sure that you're sort of giving out to the world, which I think is more important than ever, and also pursuing things that maybe you didn't have time to pursue before when you were married. Okay, you guys. Well, I wish I had a sound effect For the popping of a champagne cork, because it's the last episode of season two, and it has been such a ball for me. It has been so inspiring, so informative. I mean, especially for me, my husband always jokes that it's like my master class. I get to talk to all these incredible people and learn so much. I've loved every single episode. I hope you have. Um, before we get into season three, and don't worry, I will put everything out on social media when that's happening. Um, I have a book coming out May 10th called Allie's Well That Ends Well. And so If you're missing me bad, go buy the book. It's stories about how I dealt with COVID. Um, We all had our coping mechanisms. Mine was to eat a lot of ice cream and go clamming. And I look forward to hearing from you and talking to you in season three. Thank you for listening to Go Ask Allie. Check out our show notes for fun links and more info. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. And follow me on social media, on Twitter at Allie E. Wentworth, and on Instagram at the Real Allie Wentworth. Now, if you'd like to ask me a question or suggest a guest or a topic to dig into in season three, I would love to hear from you. And there's a bunch of ways to do it. You can call or text me at 323 364 6356, or you can email a voice memo right from your phone to Go Ask Podcast at gmail.com. And if you leave a question, as you heard today, you may hear it on Go Ask Alley. Go Ask Ali is a production of Shondaland Audio in partnership with iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from Shondaland Audio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
2: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
3: I thought
2: in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is